Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, my name is Carl and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. It's great to have you here tonight. We're going to do a quick show of hands to start off uh, tonight. Um, around your favourite meal, right? So let's say the next Saturday you go out and you can pick the fa- your favourite person to have a meal with. They tell you that you can have whatever you want. And so next weekend on Saturday, you're going out to your favourite meal and you can choose whether it is breakfast or you can choose whether it is lunch or you can choose whether it is dinner. So quick show of hands, who's going out for dinner? Awesome, cool. Who's going out for lunch? And who's going out for breakfast? My people, my people, right? Let me present a case for you why breakfast is best. Who has a favourite pair of trackies? Favourite pair of trackies. That's what Saturday night is about, right? Saturday night, you get that favourite pair of trackies, holes all through the butt. You lie on the couch, poor posture, get out your phone, Uber Eats, pizza, Netflix, the best thing that you can do with your Saturday night. The reason why no one voted for lunch or three or four people did is because lunch is vanilla, right? Lunch just gets you from breakfast to dinner. There's nothing too great about lunch at all. But breakfast is where it's at. Amen? (laughs) Breakfast is special. The best thing you can do in the world is to get up in the morning with your favourite person or meet your favourite person somewhere else and then go out to breakfast and you go to wherever you want to go, a coffee baron or somewhere special, and you look for whatever the big breakfast is called at that venue, right? And it's got like the sausages, it's got the poached eggs, it's got the cool bread, it's got the little button mushrooms, and it's got halloumi. It doesn't have roasted tomato because roasted tomato is disgusting. And then it has this, right? This thing that makes breakfast so glorious and so expensive, right? At the same time, the strangest fruit, the avocado. You go to the shops and you're trying to decide about whether an avocado is ripe to be chosen, right? You would would choose a ripe one if it maybe looked like if it was part of your body that it was ready to be cut off, right? That's gone dark and it's gone soft. The way to judge an avocado is not by the outside of an avocado, right? The outside of an avocado is ugly, it's dark, it's black, it's fading. The real value, the real purchase of an avocado is everything that happens inside the avocado. The real value of an avocado is not what happens on the surface, it is what happens within the surface. In our culture today, you might say that you don't want to judge a book by its cover because real value It's so often not what happens on the surface, but what happens underneath. Amen, Josh? This is for you, bro. You can have an avocado. In Jesus' day, he tried to teach that same lesson, right? He met up with uh, these people called the Pharisees. And he said to them, you guys care so much about the surface. You care so much about presenting well. You care so much about what other people are saying about you. You haven't taken care of what's happening on the inside. He used this image. He said, the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside of the cup is so dirty. Now, there's this group, this research group uh, called McCrindle, and they were doing research into um, why it is that so many people don't go to church these days. And uh, they, they came up with this stat that 48% of 
people don't attend church, whether they've been to church and don't go any longer or they haven't been to church at all in their life and 48% of the reason was around the behaviour of Christians and not just the behaviour of Christians but actually the hypocrisy of Christians. And that is, in one sense, I want to push back on that, right? I heard this pastor preach once and he said, he was catching up with this person and said, I don't want to go to church anymore because of all the hypocrites in church. And then the pastor said back to him, um, there are a lot of hypocrites in church and we have room for one more. Now, I like that statement. If what you mean by a hypocrite is people that are constantly admitting that we're sinners, constantly admitting that we're not perfect, constantly admitting that we are in need of a saviour. If what you mean by hypocrite is that um, if you are in my life, no doubt at some point, I'm going to offend you and I'm going to need to apologise. If that's what you mean by a hypocrite, then I want this church to be full of hypocrites. But it's true that the outside world, when they speak of us of being hypocrites, that's not quite what they mean, is it? What they are speaking about is a people whose actions don't actually line up with their message. The people who are preaching one message but living a life completely contrary to that message. And that is what we're going to see in Scripture tonight, is the Lord condemning and sovereignly judging hypocrisy in the life of the church. Now, if you're new in the life of the church, we've been studying um, the book of Acts this year, and it has been an incredible journey. So if you'd like to um, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, or if you would like to turn your Bible on, you can turn to um, page 913 in the Pew Bible, or however you find the Bible in the app that you have. What we're going to see in Scripture tonight is that counterfeit Christianity has the power to kill the local church. Counterfeit Christianity has the power to kill the church. Acts 5 is our scene uh, here this evening, but let's wind a little bit back into Acts 4 verse 32. If you look down in your Bible, it says, Now the full number of those who believed, this was probably about 10,000 or so at this point. Uh, it says in Acts 4 that there are about 5,000 men, so including men, women and children. The whole Christian church at this time was 10,000. That's a big church, but that is not a big movement. Remember that this is the only church in town. Uh, it goes on to say that the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This idea of great grace meant that um, not only was God shining upon that community and blessing that community because they were faithful, but actually, actually those people outside of the church would look upon those people inside of the church and could see that something was so special about them. So yes, the Christians were being persecuted at the time, but their actions actually drew, drew the attention of the people around them and they looked fondly upon these people. Look down at verse 34. It says that there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Uh, we have a really unique situation here. Um, some people have tried to use this passage to argue that the Bible promotes socialism or communism. That's not the case. We have a very special and unique situation here. So what was happening was that Jews 
were traveling to Jerusalem and people were traveling from very, very, very far away. And so what they would do is that they would sell um, so much of the things that they had and they would pile it all together and they would go on this really, really long journey, just enough to be able to get them to Jerusalem. And when they were at Jerusalem, they would worship and they would use that money to buy enough stuff to get back to where they were. But what happened is that people were arriving at Jerusalem and getting saved and not wanting to go home because that was the only church in the world, right? A big church, but not a global movement. So people were arriving at Jerusalem with nothing but enough cash to maybe survive another month and the poverty increased and the poverty increased and the poverty increased. And there was a plan to deal with that poverty. Look down at verse 36. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, why is this significant? Well, this is significant, firstly, because the apostles, the leaders of the church, were trusted. Maybe not like many churches today. At this point, at no point in the Christian stories, in the Christian story, had any leader not been trusted. There was no such thing as a prosperity preacher. There was no such thing as church leaders buying personal jets. There was no such thing as church leaders living in, ma- in mansions and calling them spiritual retreats. There was no need for Instagram pages called preachers and sneakers. If you don't know what that is, you don't need to look it up. There was no hypocrisy rife in the church, right? The church was born into an age of incredible integrity amongst its leaders. Secondly, it was a public affair, a public affair. It seems that the process of selling your land was impossible to hide. There were many, many people selling their land, and this highlights Barnabas, and he was doing something quite extraordinary that could not be hidden. See, the idea of um, doing things in your own, doing things in isolation, is actually a pretty new affair, right? I don't know if you've heard that phrase, it takes the village to raise a child. So prior to the 1800s, when we had the Industrial Revolution, there was this economic boom. People lived in community, right? People didn't live in their own houses, on their own with just you and your wife or just you and your couple of housemates. People lived together, family, extended family, friends, all in the same place together. So it was actually impossible for them to hide the fact that they had sold everything sold the house, sold the farm, no job, and brought all their money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Barnabas is celebrated, right? Barnabas is celebrated as an example of what many were doing, people giving sacrificially because of the great need. It was a deeply spiritual act because people were willing to say, my greatest treasure is not in this lifetime, but it is in the lifetime to come. It was a deeply theological act because they were saying if you had a problem, then it became my problem, right? So church to them wasn't an event. Church to them was family. So when the church gathers, they don't gather in this cinema-type experience where you might walk in based on the preference of how the music sounds or how comfortable the chairs are. You would come in and see if you would have your um, needs met. No, they would look around and say, what can I give up so that if you have a problem, we have a problem and we can solve that problem together? And it seems that Barnabas had no other motive than to give. So much so that they just gave him the nickname, the son of encouragement. 
It seems that when Barnabas gave, everyone knew, but his motives were not in question. He was a person of spiritual maturity, trusting God for his daily bread. But now, we enter one of the most chilling passages of all of Acts, right? Acts 5. Acts 4.32 onwards is exciting. It's an enjoyable scene as Christians are doing the right thing. And then now we have a turn. Uh, Acts 5 starts off with this contrasting word, the word but. What that means is that everything before has gone a certain way. Now everything afterwards is going to turn a very, very different way. What we know is that everything prior speaks of incredible faith, spiritual maturity and integrity and is now contrasted with someone who lacks faith, lacks spiritual maturity and integrity yet wants all the praise. Look down in your Bible in Acts 5 verse, verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira uh, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? In Acts 3 and 4, we see that the church is being persecuted from the outside by Satan. Not an incredibly um, ingenious move, and nor is it an incredibly productive move. That Luke speaks of the boldness in the church and the church thrives. So Satan attacks from the outside, now he attacks from the inside. Verse 4, it says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? See, there was, no, there was no need to give, no command to give. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then this divine judgment. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped up wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Within three hours, he was buried, friends. Um, I used to live about 40 minutes away from my house, and um, one of my favourite things to do when I finished work at my old work was to listen to Hamish Nandy on the drive home. Hamish Nandy would just like, leave me in stitches in the whole way home, right? And they would do this thing called the Caravan of Courage, where they would drive around to different countries and do all these like... The things that you really wouldn't expect people to do in different cities. And so they went to LA and rather than visiting famous people, they took acting lessons and they went to the Amazon and put on these gloves full of bull ants. And then they also went to uh, England and went to the Antique Roadshow, right? And they went there because Andy had what Hamish described was this little crappy wooden snake. I don't know if you remember this episode. And um, the whole time, uh, Hamish is telling Andy that it's not worth very much, but Andy promises that it's worth a lot. Someone came to Andy and at some point told him that this old wooden snake was of incredible values and of incredible wealth. And so they had it up in this mantelpiece and Hamish was never able to touch it, never able to touch it. So they carefully packed it away and they took it with them, took it with them to England and they took it to the Antiques Roadshow. And you hear this um, English lady who's handling this snake and she um, looks at it for a while and then she leans over to them both and said, uh, Andy, this is uh, just like you thought Hamish, a crappy old wooden snake, right? Now, what's interesting about that is why did someone lie to Andy? Why did someone all those years ago Go to Andy with this wooden snake that might have been a fun toy. If I gave my boy a little fun wooden thing, he'd play with it. Like you give, give a kid cardboard and he would love it for hours. 
They've given it to this family, and for some reason, someone thought that the best thing that they could do was lie to be able to receive praise so far long ago. This is not altogether different from the situation with Ananias. I would put it to you that maybe no one in this life of this church has given half of what they own for other people in the church, right? And it seems that he sold a lot. He sold everything and kept back just a portion for himself. And so what he's done is an incredible act of service, but he has lied. And this lie was rooted in not just the sin of him being a liar, but in the sin of hypocrisy. In the sin of hypocrisy. Ananias sought to portray himself as one of the spiritually elite when the truth is that Ananias' integrity was spiritually bankrupt. Then why would Luke include this narrative in the early stages of the account of the early church? Ananias and his wife Sophia go through this really similar experience where they come before the apostles and they give their money and they lie about how much they have and then the Lord judges them. Why in this early stage of the church's infancy when the church is just a baby, friends, just a baby and it's just starting to grow and it needs protection, why would Luke, the author of Acts, include this story? Well, I believe it's for this reason. Because the lie of hypocrisy Counterfeit Christianity, friends, has the power to destroy the local church. And it has already destroyed so many. So many churches have closed up their doors and exist no longer because those people on the outside no longer trust those on the inside. And here's our first principle from the text. The foundation of a God-honoring church is authenticity. The foundation of a God-honoring church is authenticity. Look down in verse 4. He says, While it remained sold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. Ananias wanted what Barnabas had. He didn't want to just give. He wanted the praise and adoration of the Barnabas. He wanted the nickname that Barnabas got. He wanted the attention. He wanted everything that Barnabas had, which was to clean the outside of his cup, even though inside he was spiritually fractured. It is no good thing to a healthy church when you start polishing the outside of the church when the inside of the church needs the work. It was really beautiful, this experience that we had a, a couple of weeks ago. We put out this call for people who were passionate about the 6 p.m. service and wanted the 6 p.m. service to experience uh, spiritual renewal, to come together for a meeting. And we had all these cool people rock up, people that were talented and people that were passionate and people that had ability. And as we're sitting around in the room and we start thinking about all the cool things that we could do. We could take the coffee machine from being out there and hidden around a corner. We can bring it into the room and we can um, make the, this, this sanctuary, this church auditorium look so much better. We can have cooler lights. We can have cooler musicians. We can do all of these things right, but every single person that's at that meeting would say that cleaning the outside of the cup is not the foundation of a thriving church, amen? Not cleaning the outside of the cup. See, all of those things can be good. It can be good to think about hospitality. It can be good to think about the creative arts, but it is not the foundation of a church. The foundation of a church is Jesus Christ and the foundation of a church is sinners who acknowledge that they are desperately in need of saving. 
Not people that puff up their chest and pretend that they're more spiritual than they are. This is authenticity defined. What does it mean for the Christian to live authentically? It means looking at God's word, looking at my own life through the lens of God's word, and then being willing to speak truthfully about where I do and I do not measure up. You know, if that depresses you, then you've got the gospel around the wrong way. Uh, Tim Keller famously said this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hoped. Living the gospel-centered life means that we recognize how far our life falls short from God's standard and we don't try to puff ourselves up. To live authentically as a Christian is to acknowledge to anyone that will listen, I am a sinner desperately in need of saving. And one of the biggest problems of Ananias, his counterfeit Christianity, is that it is contagious. Look down in verse 7. It says, About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you paid, the uh, price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us where Ananias, where Sapphira was for three hours. Um, some theologians speculate that maybe she was um, held back for three hours and was, wanted to walk into this sea of applause. That maybe she was using that money that they had held back to make herself seem beautiful so that when she came into the room, that she would receive this great applause for her incredible beauty and her incredible spiritual maturity. Now, that preaches really well, but the Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible does say, though, is that she was in on it. Look down in verse 9. It says, Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. God's divine judgment on hypocrisy. And we are prone to wear masks, aren't we? We wear masks to um, protect ourselves, to cover up what's really going on inside. Uh, we put filters over our life and project our best self. You know what the good thing about social media is? I'll let you come up with your own list about the good things about social media. But one of the things that social media does is it gives you an opportunity to present your very best self, your controlled self. This is a photo that I want to show you guys. If you can just put the first photo up there for us. This is the photo that I want to show you guys. Us being deep and spiritual, right? So it's me with my wife, me batting way outside my average, me with my beautiful wife, me holding my kid, and just there's a, there's a sense of spirituality that's happening in this photo, right? You can see the kid on the backhand on the right that's just looking at this deep spiritual moment. It's like me trying to look real cool with like a 36-year-old with ripped jeans and a, a leather jacket that he got like real cheap in Bali. Trying to pretend, right? Trying to hold it all together. I would love if this was the picture, honestly, this is my flesh speaking, but this is really me speaking, if what you thought of me was that I was just this incredibly spiritually mature, wise, and man of integrity, and if I go to Carl, he's got the answers. That, my flesh speaking, that's what I want. That's not all of me. This is actually much more what my life is like. Let's look at this next photo. That's actually much more of what our life is like, right? Now look at the kid in the background. 
you were to look at the innermost parts of my life, that's what you would actually see. You would see me and my wife hopelessly confused. You would see that there's times that Jack wants to be with me and there's times that Jack wants to be anywhere else. This is Jack on the left-hand side. This is my wife just saying, I knew this was going to happen. Our kids were quiet through the whole service and then now this. I would love to tell you that um, on Friday, uh, I have day off from work and I look after my kids and um, I would love to tell you that that is a day where they just sit at my feet and dwell, right? I just tell them Bible stories and they glean from me. As my flesh speaking, that's what I wish that you thought about me. The truth is that often on Friday, as I spend time with my children, I honestly think that I'm failing as a dad. So often I spend time with my kids and I don't know what I'm doing. and um, I wish that there was someone else around that could just give me a break so I could go and hang out on my own. That's the mask off, but is that not real life? I would love to pretend around you all the time and pretend that my kids always listen to me. They don't. I wonder how you pretend as you think of what it means to pretend in the life of the church. We pray prayers that sound like theological essays, they sound like books, rather than, we're, rather than what we're doing is speaking to our Heavenly Father. We um, speak to one another like we're in a job interview, presenting our best self first, answering other questions like, the only thing that's wrong with us is that we work too hard. What's wrong with you, Carl? Oh, I read my Bible too much. <laughs> Did you go out serving this week, Carl? Oh, no, I was just too deep in prayer. What are you doing, Carl, now? I'm fasting. I've got all the spiritual answers, but what is really going on underneath? What is really going on underneath? Jesus said it like this in another passage of Scripture. He said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees, your, who sees in secret will reward you. It's a warning, right? You can be fake if you want. But everything that's happening now, that will be your reward. And Luke would tell us that that reward is not life in fulfillment, it's actually a life, life of emptiness. That we actually find fulfillment where we stand alongside someone else and say, I do not have it all together. But maybe your little bit that you have together and my little bit that I have together, when we put it together, God can use that. Two vulnerable, authentic people willing to say that I'm a sinner desperately in need of saving. I desire wisdom, but I am not wise. I desire strength, but I am not strong. I am in desperate need of a saviour. So let me ask you, are you daily living authentically, fleeing from hypocrisy, or have you succumbed to the temptation of counterfeit Christianity? I um, have reasons why I would prefer uh, run from being sincere or being authentic. Uh, my reasons are that I'm, I often think, oh, I'm a pastor. I don't want to let you guys see underneath. 
But the truth is you don't have, a, have to be a pastor to come up with reasons why you don't want people to see you underneath, right? You might think, oh, I've been in the leader in the church for a long time or I've got family um, and I don't want to embarrass them or I'm older than you, I don't want to... I don't want to contribute because I don't want people to think that I'm actually spiritually immature and spiritually weak. For the sake of being the kind of church God wants us to be, we need to be sinners who admit that we are desperate people needing a saviour. And when that happens, the broken people can be welcomed in and the broken people can be pointed towards a healer. Because what happens is when we puff our chest up, we say that we've got all the answers. Come to me, I can tell you exactly what to do. But the truth is, apart from God's word, I have absolutely no idea what to do. All I can do is have people that come towards me. They might see a a little bit of God in you and confuse you with God. And then so they'll be attracted to you and you've just got to keep saying, it's not me, it's all about him. It's not about my wisdom, it's about his wisdom. It's not about my personhood, it's about his personhood. I do think that there's wise ways to be vulnerable. I do think it's better that um, guys meet with guys. I do think that there's room for, um, I do think that it's wise for people to meet with uh, people who are more spiritually mature to work through complex issues. But the emphasis in Luke's passage here is that we desperately as a church need to flee hypocrisy and to be authentic, to be real, to be vulnerable. And every time I speak about that, and I speak it to my soul, this fear wells up in me. This fear of what other people would say. And Luke would say, if you want to be free, uh, free of the fear of others, then you need to allow God to produce in you a fear of the Lord. The foundation of a God-honoring church is a fear of the Lord. Look down in your Bibles in verse 11. It's also repeated in uh, verse 5. He writes, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It is really important that we fear rightly. Every time a pastor gets up to preach and they speak about the fear of the Lord, they're careful in the way that they do it, right? Because they don't want you to confuse um, the fear of man with the fear of the Lord. That when we come to the Lord, it is about awe and it is about reverence. I caught up with a friend at uh, a park uh, a couple of weeks ago. I hadn't seen him in would have been 15 years. We both went to school together. Um, this year I realised that I'd been graduated from school for 20 years. Feels so old. Feels so old. And I'm caught up with this bloke. And we both suffered from the same kind of bullying in school. Um, he was, he'd been bullied because he's got muscular dystrophy and he, um, he walked with a limp. And so a lot of guys at school would tease him. And we spoke about um, what it meant to kind of fear bullies, that we would not set our alarm in the morning to go to school because we just we would go if we went. But we had a real fear when we went to school that we would get picked on and we felt isolated. And we spoke about that and I got to share the gospel with him as he said to me, oh, how do you feel about those people now? And I said, well, if God can forgive me for what I've done, then who am I to hold that against other people? And we spoke about what fear meant. And fear in a worldly sense, right? We look at other people and we fear the harm that, that they can do to us. And so when we come to Scripture and we see this word fear, we, we hold back and preachers are so careful about this word. And why is that? See, theologians have interpreted this word fear so carefully because they want you to be sure of one thing. Though you, though you should fear the Lord, He is not your enemy. Though it is right to fear the Lord, 
He is not your enemy. You have awe for the Lord. You have reverence for the Lord. But he calls you friend. It's what the word of God says in James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Those people who are willing to receive salvation as a free gift, having our sins dealt with on the cross, you do not work for your salvation, right? If you just receive this free gift of salvation and you walk in all that God has for you, he looks upon you and calls you friend. So what Paul is saying in Romans 5 verse 8 when he says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm just going to invite the band to come back up on stage at this point. Uh, one time uh, at school in my younger years, I had a bully picking on me. And I remember that this, uh, you know, when you're getting picked on at school, someone for a year level above your year level comes along. They seem so strong and so mighty. Well, that happened to me. I was in uh, one of the younger years and this guy came along and stood next to me. And this guy was strong. This guy was uh, big. But I did not fear him. And I did not fear him because he was on my side. And that's the story of the Lord for all of us. It's that fear gripped this early church. They did not fear that the Lord was going to smite them or push them aside or ignore them. They were filled with awe and for reverence for the way that God was crafting his church. If this church is going to thrive, this church is going to be a place where broken people receive healing. This is a church that is going to be known in the areas of people that love the gospel and love his word. It will come from people who do not puff up our chest, but from people who bow our heads and say that I'm not good enough to do it on my own. But I do have awe and reverence for the one who does. And you might come into church every week and you feel far from the Lord and you want to protect yourself so you puff up. You pretend and you treat conversations like a job interview. You pray in groups like you have it all together. Well, the invitation from Luke in Acts is to say, drop the facade, you don't need it. Stop pretending the church can't be built that way. The invitation is for you to receive what only God can do in you. That God is the one that can make you whole. Not your own striving, not your own efforts. And he wants to meet with you today. I would love to pray for you. Uh, in our church, we just love to bow our heads as a sign of reverence. And so if you feel comfortable just to bow your head and, and close your eyes. This is just your moment to call upon the Lord. Maybe you feel that your Christian life has been marked by a life of pretending. And it's draining you and you feel that struggle to keep up appearances. And tonight you would just love to the Holy Spirit to remind you that you are loved and you are cared for and you are a child of God and that is all that you need. I would just love to pray for you if you feel like you're in that place where you would just love some prayer. Would you just put up your hand so I might know to pray for you? Ah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for using your word. Thank you, God. God, I pray for these people who recognize that um, many times we catch ourselves pretending, me included, 
We just want to be real with other people, not making it about ourselves, making very little of us and much of you. God, I pray that your spirit would comfort, your spirit would convict, that you would lead people to repentance, that your kindness, God, would be ministering now by your spirit. We ask that you would fill people by your spirit, Lord. And God, I pray for our church. I pray um, and thank you for our pastor, Pastor Timon, and for his vulnerability and authenticity in this church. And I pray that many, many people in the life of City Reach would feel no pressure to pretend, but would receive the invitation towards authenticity, would reflee from fakeness, and would we embrace what it means to say that we are sinners, we are broken, we are not perfect, but we know the one who is. May our church be built on that foundation. Thank you, Jesus.